If you've watched any television at all over the Thanksgiving holiday, you may have seen spots like this. It's part of a $100 million ad campaign funded by anonymous donors. The aim is to restore the true narrative of who Jesus is to skeptics, unbelievers, the de-churched, or maybe on behalf even for us. 300 million views so far. It's called the He Gets Us campaign. A desire to help people understand that the founder of the Christian faith is actually someone who can deeply identify with us in our brokenness. This is what we call pre-evangelism. It's not necessarily evangelistic in nature. There's not enough information. But it creates curiosity in human hearts. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew creates his own He Gets Us campaign. Matthew 1 is, is, is a genealogy. You wouldn't think there's anything important in a genealogy. It's just a bunch of begats in the King James Version. And yet through this genealogy, Matthew does some pre-evangelism with us. He helps us to learn through four women whose names are included in the genealogy that Jesus is someone who gets us. He's someone who can identify with us in our brokenness and pain and confusion. Our Advent theme this year is the unexpected king. Now that sounds a little confusing. We just sang the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was expected. Messianic expectations were out of the roof. But so many of the expectations about the expected king were completely wrong. The people were looking for a political powerhouse. Someone who would elevate the church to a place of power and control. And those expectations were wrong. The people expected a Messiah who would come and be a liberator. Who would free the church from Roman oppression. And those expectations were wrong. Jesus came to bring us hope, but hope in a surprising way that is illustrated through the stories of the names of four women in the genealogy of Christ, when in that day, women were never included in genealogies. They had no legal standing. There would be absolutely no purpose to put a woman in a genealogy. Except 
if there's something else going on. And what's going on is Matthew wants us to know that no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, Jesus gets us. Let's all stand out of reverence for the word of God. I'm just going to read six verses because the women are in these six verses. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he gave it to us because he wants us to know he gets us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd send your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts that we might trust Jesus more and more. We ask this in his name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As I said earlier, uh, Advent is the time where we ask God to prepare our hearts to celebrate the wonder of the Incarnation. But it's also a time when we look forward to the second Advent, the return of Christ. And week number one is the prophecy candle, and the theme is hope. And our hope is a surprise to us in this passage because we learn that Jesus is a Messiah that is compassionate toward us, that is patient toward us, that is tender toward us in all of our brokenness and need and sin. So let's dig in. First of all, I want you to be surprised by the king who identifies with desperate posers. Look at verse 3. You see the name Tamar. That's from Genesis 38. A story so grisly and racy that the He Gets Us campaign could not even consider using it. It begins with Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah had a firstborn son named Ur. Ur was a wicked man, so God in his righteous judgment put Ur to death. But before Ur had died... Judah had chosen Tamar to be Ur's wife. There was a Jewish law that said that if the oldest son died and the wife of that oldest son hadn't born any children, then the next son in line was to continue the oldest son's legacy. So there was a younger son named Onan. Onan allowed sibling rivalry and hatred to be carried to an extreme, and he refused 
to continue his older brother Ur's line through Tamar. And so God put him to death as well. Judah had one son left. His name was Shelah. And Shelah, Shelah, Judah was afraid he'd lose him too. So he promised Tamar that he would eventually give her Shelah, but he lied. And Tamar was forgotten, a widow in that day, absolutely helpless and vulnerable. Well, vulnerable people, desperate people, will do desperate things. So Tamar discovered what Judah's traveling itinerary was, found out a town he'd be visiting, ran ahead of him, and posed as a cult prostitute. When Judah came into town, Judah propositioned her without knowing it was her. It must have been an elaborate pose. And Tamar became pregnant. When Judah found that he had, she had become pregnant, he wanted to burn her for her unfaithfulness, filled with self-righteousness. But what he forgot was since he didn't have any money to pay the prostitute, Tamar posing as a prostitute, he gave her his staff as a pledge. He sent money to pay her, but they couldn't find her, and so they forgot about it. So when Judah wanted to burn Tamar at the stake, Tamar sent the staff to Judah and said, I am pregnant by the man who owns this staff. Obviously, Tamar was spared. She gave birth to twins. One of those twins' names was Perez, and Perez is in the lineage, the ancestry of Christ. Tamar, forgotten, ignored, desperate. In her desperation, she resorted to oppose a false self. Rather than trusting God to meet her needs, she tried to manipulate. How do we do that? Rather than trusting Jesus, how do we develop an elaborate pose to try to make life work rather than trusting in Jesus? See, the pose didn't originate with Tamar. It originated with Adam in the garden to cover his shame and nakedness he posed with fig leaves in a self-reliant attempt to hide his nakedness. How do you try to hide your nakedness? This week with family at Thanksgiving, how have you tried to hide your nakedness? How have you tried to cover your own shame with a pose, a false self, rather than trusting Jesus completely? There are different types of poses. There's the hard-working perfectionist that always wants to appear right because they can't bear the pain of feeling that they were wrong. There's the people-pleaser pose that's always after affirmation because they're so insecure. 
in themselves. There's the blame shifter pose that's always defensive, trying to guard their righteousness in the eyes of others. There's the indulgent pose that does anything to avoid pain or seek pleasure. There's the manipulator pose that always seeks to control people with either flattery or flirtery. There's controlling poses. My pose, it's no secret. I'm a people pleaser. To avoid the pain of rejection, I will do almost anything it takes to win your approval. Because I'm so insecure in the gospel myself, I want to have my own righteousness affirmed. And I'm always fishing for ways to receive that. What's your pose? What's your false self? I doubt you're as desperate as Tamar to pose as a prostitute. But how are you posing? How are you presenting a pretentious false self to try to make life work apart from utter dependence upon Jesus? Drop your fig leaves and run naked and unashamed to the expected king with an unexpected ancestry. And then secondly, be surprised by the king who identifies with wild prodigals. Look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab's the second woman in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab is a Canaanite, part of a wild, idolatrous Baal cult. Baal was the idol of fertility, And to worship the God of fertility, you wanted to practice fertility. So the Canaanites were a very immoral people. Rahab, unlike Tamar, didn't resort to a singular act of immorality. Prostitution was her profession. She was a wild woman who repeatedly sold her body. We don't know why. But she was squandering her glory as an image bearer, night after night after night. Like the wild prodigal son in Luke 15, she wasted her glory in a distant land of immorality. And yet Rahab, like Tamar, is in the genealogy of Christ. It seems scandalous, doesn't it? Not only is Rahab in the genealogy of Christ, she's mentioned in the New Testament twice. She's in the hall of fame of faith Because she welcomed the spies. See, the whole story of Rahab is found in Joshua. 
And they're about ready to go into the promised land. And so God tells Joshua to send spies into the land. And they come into the land of Jericho and they want to hide from the enemy. So they go to a house of prostitution. Rahab was not only a prostitute, most likely she was the head of the brothel. And where better for a group of men to hide than in a brothel? Because who's going to tell on each other? But Rahab had heard that God had judged surrounding towns. And Rahab said, please save me and my family. And so the spies had Rahab tie a scarlet cord, scarlet like the blood of Christ, a scarlet cord in her window so that she would be saved. And Hebrews 11 tells us it was by faith that she did that. At some point, Rahab was converted. At some point, Jesus got a hold of Rahab's heart. At some point, Rahab understood that Jesus got her. And Jesus did get her and took her out of a life of sin. And then she's mentioned in James, where James says, wasn't Rahab justified by works? And what he means there is not that we're saved by works, but we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. There's no easy believism. There's no cheap grace in the gospel. If grace saves us, grace gives us faith and repentance, and grace changes our lives. And James is saying Rahab is evidence of someone who has been transformed and gripped by grace who was given faith and repentance, and that faith and repentance led to a changed life. Well, maybe you've lived as a prodigal, and you are in a distant land right now. And maybe you think God's response is to turn his back and wag his head in disappointment and tap his foot and close himself off from you, but that's not true. Jesus gets you, and he's like this. And he says, come to me. And just like with Rahab, know that I get you. And I will give you rest. And then thirdly, be surprised by the king who identifies with afflicted outsiders. Look at verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth is the third woman in the genealogy. You know Ruth. She has an entire Old Testament book named after her. Her life is like a Shakespearean tragedy. She marries, she's a Moabite, and she marries an Israelite. But her husband dies, and she's a widow and all alone. Her husband's mother, Naomi, wants to go back to Bethlehem, where she's from, and tells Ruth to stay back in her own country. And Ruth says, no, wherever you go, I go. Where, whatever you do, I will do. Whatever you worship your God, I will worship your God. And so Ruth loses everything to go with Naomi. And she comes, of all places, to Bethlehem, the place we know now that Jesus was born. But Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite. Two events in the ancestry of the Moabites that led to Ruth being an outsider. We've already heard of her affliction. She lost everything. 
but now let me tell you about how she's an outsider. The first event is in Genesis 19. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, Lot and his two daughters escape. Their mom turns to salt because she looked back. And Lot's two daughters are afraid that they're not going to have children. So what do they do? It's crazy this is in Scripture. They got their own father drunk and had incestuous relationships with him. The son that was born to the oldest daughter by her father was named Moab. It was so disgusting and so despicable that the Moabites were a rejected people. But that's not all. In Numbers 22, there's another part of the family history. The king of Moab hires a pagan prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. As a result of the king of Moab wanting to curse Israel, God curses Moab and says no person from Moab will ever be allowed to worship in God's sanctuary. God rejects all Moabites. And so Ruth is in Bethlehem, an afflicted outsider. Maybe some of your sin and brokenness and pain is related to things that aren't your fault. Maybe you grew up in an abusive home. Maybe you've had to face really bad decisions by parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. Maybe you've had to face a family history of alcohol or drug abuse or maybe even sexual abuse. Jesus gets you. Just like he got Ruth. You see, Jesus was an afflicted outsider as well. It's Christmas time. It's time to watch Christmas specials. In one of the specials, one of Santa's reindeer, Mr. Donner, has a son. But the son is weird. He's got a red nose. They call him Rudolph. He's made fun of, teased, bullied. He's afflicted. He becomes an outsider. And so he runs away. He eventually comes to this island called the Island of Misfit Toys. And they sing a sad song and a Charlie in the box. That's right, not a Jack in the box, a Charlie in the box. Leads them in the song. And while they sing the song... We meet a squirt gun that shoots jelly, a cowboy that rides an ostrich, a boat that can't float, and a bear with feathers instead of fur. But it all ends well, as you know. Rudolph eventually guides Santa's sleigh and convinces Santa 
to go to the island of misfit toys and find homes for all of them. Jesus doesn't need to be convinced to go to misfits and bring them home. Maybe you feel like a misfit this Advent season. Run to the expected king with an unexpected ancestry. And then fourthly and finally, be surprised by the king who identifies with disadvantaged targets. Look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let me ask you something. Why didn't the Holy Spirit just say Bathsheba? Why, why go around things and subtly use the descriptor, the wife of Uriah? Well, I'll tell you why. I think the Holy Spirit's protecting the name of Bathsheba. David was the king. He sees a beautiful woman on a roof. And the text tells us he took her. He's the king. She's a subject. He's a man of power. A man of power gets what he wants. What's she to do? He's a man. She's a woman. In that day, what's a woman to do? She has no rights. He's older. She's a young woman. What could she have done? Confused, terrified, paralyzed. She becomes pregnant. David wants everyone to think it's her husband's baby, so he tries to lure the husband back from the front lines of war. But nothing works. So on one last attempt to cover up his sin, he has Uriah put on the front line knowing that he'd be killed. Bathsheba's life is destroyed. Oh, don't get me wrong. She is a sinner just like all of us here are sinners. But in this instance, she is nothing but a disadvantaged target. But Jesus gets her. She loses the child. But then to protect her, God allows David to marry her. And then they have another child. And that child is named Solomon, Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. Do you not see how scandalous this is? This, this is in the genealogy of the king of kings, of the savior of the world. And it's all there to tell us one thing. He really does get us. 
It's interesting that we find this genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. We learn in Luke 5 that Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth. He wasn't even seeking Jesus. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Do you know anything about a tax collector in that day? They were, they were absolute crooks. They were thieves. They were allowed to charge whatever tax they wanted to charge. The Romans took a certain percentage that was known, and a tax collector could gouge their own people. Matthew was gouging his fellow Israelites by charging a tax, anything he wanted, above what the Romans wanted, and he was allowed to keep it. Jesus said, I get you. Come, follow me. He left his tax collector's booth and threw a party. And at the party, there were prostitutes and tax collectors and other kinds of sinners. And the religious people were offended. And Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. but the unrighteous. And it is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. And I find it interesting that of all people who included these four women in the genealogy, it was Matthew, the one who understood that Jesus was the expected king with an unexpected ancestry who wants us all to know and to respond to the truth that Jesus gets you. No matter what you've done, where you've been, Jesus gets you and says, come to me now. Let's pray. Father, if we had made up a genealogy like this, we would have probably been called overly dramatic, over the top, uncalled for. But Holy Spirit, you wrote this genealogy through Matthew. And so, Lord, help it not be a story but help it be truth that changes our lives. And God, may we not only receive your grace, may we extend it. May we be more like you, Jesus, as we live our lives day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And so stand and hear the benediction, the promise of this scandalous love for each one of us who would turn from our sin and run to Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Amen.